Um, take your Bible, let's go over to Romans 16. And today, as Tom prayed and we talked a little bit about last week, we bring this glorious book to a close. I find myself asking, as I'm sure some of you do as well, is there life after Romans? <laughs> well, yes, sort of. This is a book that has become an imprint on our lives and has become the kind of book that, frankly, I hope that you keep going back to time and time again because the truths contained are worth reviewing over and over and over. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Now come, Lord, by your Spirit and use this final message in this glorious book to bring to mind what we've learned to seal the truths of this glorious epistle into our hearts, and even to rekindle our flame, the flame of our souls for what it is that this book is all about, namely the righteousness of God, and make us a worshiping people as we leave today. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. The book of Romans has changed the course of individual, church, and world history. Its doctrinal content and its vision, its lofty vision of God, have been used to radically transform individuals and churches and to spark movements of revival and renewal. In the fourth century, St. Augustine, one of the foundational thinkers of the Christian faith, came to Christ after reading the words in Romans 13, which says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. And the book of Romans, chapter 13, became the anvil on which God broke the heart and set Augustine free from his lifelong bondage to sexual sin. In his book called Confessions, Augustine reflected on the beauty of God's transformative work. Here's what he said, late, have I loved you, O oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called, you shouted. You broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Those words come from a man who met Christ in the book of Romans. A thousand years later, Martin Luther was studying Romans 1.17, which says the righteous shall live by faith, and he recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, and he lit the fire of the Protestant Reformation. He said this of Romans, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. 
This passage in Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin said when one gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all of the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And I wonder if that's perhaps part of your story. I hope whether you've been a part of the series that we've done in Romans for the last two weeks, two months, or the last two years, that you will have seen the way in which God has worked in your life through this glorious book. After the first service, one of our uh, congregants came up to me afterwards and he said, I was fearful I wouldn't live until the end of the book. (laughs) I made it. There's something refreshingly hopeful about the content of this beautiful epistle. It's been my joy to be your tour guide as we've sort of plumbed the depths of what this book is all about. And I wonder how your vision of God, how your understanding of God's grace, how your life perhaps has been impacted and marked by this book. If there's one word that I would want emblazoned on your mind as it relates to the book of Romans, it would be the word righteousness. And if there is one statement regarding righteousness and its application in the book of Romans, I would want it to be this. The book of Romans is about this truth, that the righteousness that a righteous God demands is a righteousness that he gives through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you wonder what is Christianity all about, friend, it is about that. It is that we need a righteousness that we can never earn and we need a righteousness that we have made a mess of because of our sin and the only way we become righteous is because a righteous God gives us righteousness because of the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. It's how someone becomes a Christian. It's the difference between heaven and hell, and it is the central truth in the book. Now today we're gonna look at verses 21 through 27, and I want to remind you of some truths from this book. We're gonna use the doxology in verses 25 to 27 as our outline with seven key summary statements, but before we get into those, let me just highlight eight more names. Yes, there's more names in this book. We saw 26 of them in chapter 16, verses one to 16, and now we see eight more. And Paul wrote Romans because they were real people who he had in mind when he wrote this book. And there were real people that he was with who were concerned about what was going on in the city of Rome. He not only loves this church, and desires to see them grow in grace, but he has brothers around him who love this church and want to see him grow in grace. And even though they were 700 miles apart, Paul's writing this likely in the city of Corinth, the church at Rome is receiving the epistle, Paul wants the gospel to flourish. A few highlights of the people we see listed. First, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, he says, greets you. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He was his, sort of his son in the faith. Timothy joined Paul's ministry during his second missionary trip, and whenever there was a major problem or a really sticky issue, Paul sent Timothy. He was his favorite ambassador for the gospel. 
No one was more trusted by Paul than Timothy. We also see in verse 22, we have some brothers who are called kinsmen, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. We don't know much about them. Lucius or Jason, actually we know a little bit about Jason. In, in Acts 17, he nearly lost his life when a mob attacked his home. He was playing host to the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica. A mob looking for Saul, or rather Paul, attacked the house and they nearly killed Jason. The other man here, listed as Sosipater, or I'm probably pronouncing that name incorrectly, but when I meet him in heaven, we'll fix it. He's from Berea and traveled with Paul to Macedonia, someone who began to be a part of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Verse 22, Tertius identifies himself here as the man who wrote the letter, which means he was the secretary who, as Paul dictated the letter, Tertius recorded the words. Gaius, in verse 23, is described as host to me. Likely, he's the man listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, whom Paul baptized in the city of Corinth. And apparently, Paul is residing with Gaius as he writes the letter. And also, there's a church that is meeting at his house. And finally, we find two other men, Erastus and Cordus. We know nothing about Cordus. All that we know about Erastus there's a man incidentally mentioned in Acts 19 and 2 Timothy 4. He may be that man, but what we do know is that he's listed as the city treasurer, which no doubt was a position of influence, as if so that Rome would know the gospel has not only influenced common folks, but it's also made its way to the city treasurer. The idea is the treasurer belongs to us. Erastus was his name. Paul sends these greetings because these brothers are concerned about what's going on in the city of Rome. And we see once again these personal connections where the gospel ministry had not only united them together as a band of brothers, but also made them keenly interested as to what was happening in the city of Rome. And you know why they were interested as to what was going on in Rome? Because they loved the gospel. You see, if you love the gospel, and if you love what the gospel has done in your life, if you love the idea of a righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that he gives, and he gives to those who put their faith in Jesus, when you've seen that transform your life, and when you've seen the impact of that around you and in you, you want that good news to spread. And you don't care if it's 70 feet or 700 miles or 7,000 miles, you want the gospel to go. And that's what's on the hearts of these brothers. They're concerned about what's happening in the city of Rome because the gospel gives you a heart to see more people come to faith in Jesus. So next Sunday, when we take our Christmas offering, we will do something unusual. We will take an entire Sunday's offering, and we'll give it away to people who we've never met, to areas of the world that many of us have never gone. And why would we do that? The answer is, it's because we have been enraptured with the beauty of the gospel, and as a result, it means that we love to give because we love the gospel and we wanna see it go forth. Romans makes you love the gospel because you see it afresh and anew. You taste and see of the Lord's goodness in it, and you are then compelled to be interested in what God is doing around the world. So these names all well, the brothers who are around the Apostle Paul as he writes this book. 
Now to verses 25 through 27. We see here now seven statements that I want to pull out and then use them to highlight themes that we find throughout the entire book of Romans. This, these verses, 25 to 27, is one of the best doxologies in the entire Bible. It's one long sentence. It functions like a bookend or like an inclusio for the entire book. The, the first bookend came in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and now we see the second bookend where the language and tone is very similar to how the book began. Let me show you this. What I've done is I've highlighted or bolded some of the key phrases that appear in Romans chapter 1. Look what it says. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. This doxology serves to not only bring the book of Romans to a close, but it also highlights particular themes that were very clear throughout our journey over the last two years. Let me use these statements to remind you as to what this book is all about. The first statement, there are seven of them, is this, to him. Verse 25 begins, now to him who is able to strengthen you. So this doxology begins where Paul's theology in Romans ultimately ends, which is with an upward look to him. The purpose in Paul's writing this book was not just to communicate important doctrinal truths. Instead, what he wants these Roman Christians to understand is he wants them to understand who God is. He wants them to understand what God has done, and he wants them to understand what God's actions say about himself. He wants these people, and he wants us, to read this book and be awed with the beauty of who and what God is, that our attention would be, at the end of Romans, to you, to you. Be glory forever and ever, amen. This time of year we celebrate the coming of Christ, even in the announcing of the coming of the baby to the shepherds, the angels began their announcement with glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. The aim of God's activity in the world is not just to accomplish redemption. His aim is to accomplish redemption so that he can be displayed as great over all the earth. So the book of Romans is not meant for you just to understand more about the depravity of man. It's not meant for you to understand more about justification or the battle that we wage with our sin or our union with Christ or how to live free as a follower of Jesus. The book of Romans is about all of that and so much more that instead you might know and love and honor God. So Romans is a vision of who God is. And that's what my hope is, is that after studying this book, you would know him better and would love him more and understand the intricacies of his work so that you could be a person who never, ever ends the beautiful pursuit of what it means to know him and love him. Go to chapter 1 show you a few things here. 
Romans is a God-centered book. Verse one, chapter one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Verse 23, we learn that the essence of sin is the exchange of glory. We take the glory of God, we compare it to the glory of man, and we say, I'd rather have the glory of man than the glory of God. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And we saw that this divine, or this exchange, this tragic exchange of divine glory for mortal glory is most prevalently seen in sexuality. And in particular, Paul, while not listing it as the worst of all sins, give us the most vivid display of this divine exchange, or this exchange of divine glory for our glory, where we say, I'm going not to love God, but instead love one like myself. And Paul uses homosexual behavior as the most vivid illustration, not the worst sin, but the most vivid illustration of this tragic exchange of God's glory for our own glory. Chapter five, verse one, we heard the beauty of justification is the simple fact that we have peace with God. Chapter five, one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans eight, because of Christ, we are not only forgiven, but we're also considered to be children of God and joint heirs with Christ. And then the mystery of our righteousness And God's sovereign purposes is that everything is from him and through him and to him. In other words, what Romans aims to show you is that the center of the center of the center of the universe is God, not me. And if I've been able to help you get that into your head, whether you're four years old or 104, you will be greatly served by that central truth. The key text in Romans is chapter three, verses 21 to 26. If you had the opportunity to mark in your Bible, you could put a bracket around those verses, 21 to 26. They represent not only the heart of the book of Romans, but Martin Luther believed they were the heart of the entire New Testament. Verse 21 of Romans three, now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, the arms of God are wide open today. In other words, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, there is no reason why you should wait one Sunday, one hour, one minute, one second longer, because there's no distinction. We've all sinned, as this text will tell us, and the arms of God are wide open if you'll come and put your faith in Jesus today. For all have sinned. It's not a single perfect person in this room. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all exchanged his glory for our own glory. And then he says, here's the solution, verse 24 and 25, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
Why did he do this? The text answers it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the purpose of God's redemption, the purpose of the sending of his son at Christmas, the purpose of the cross, the purpose of offering forgiveness to those who put their faith in Christ is not just to save wicked sinners. The purpose of God's plan is to make known his righteousness to the world and all the created order so that angels and demons and everyone that lives and breathes and has their being in the created order would look at God's plan to save humanity and say, that is unbelievable. And it says something incredible about the glory of who our God is. So you need to know that Romans is not about you. And your redemption is not about you. And your salvation is not about you. It is about the beauty of him. And that's why it begins. Now to him. Secondly, the text says, who is able to strengthen you. The second closing statement here relates to the power of God and the, therefore the powerlessness of mankind. The beauty of Romans is that mankind needs a righteousness that can only be given to them by God. And so the message of this book is that spiritual power or spiritual strength is not in us. And it's not in us because our hearts and our actions are the ultimate problem. If I can get this into your minds and hearts from the book of Romans, you would be greatly helped, and that is this, that my biggest problem, your biggest problem, my biggest problem is me, and your biggest problem is not me. <laughs> it's you, and you will be greatly helped, and I will be greatly helped if you can get that in your mind and heart. Your, your marriage will be helped, your parenting will be helped, your singleness will be helped, your job will be helped, everything about you will be helped. If you just get it into your head, my biggest problem in the world is me. It's my heart, it's my sin, it's my issue, it's my desires, and that's what's wrong with me. I am fundamentally broken, and I need someone to save me, not just for my sin generally, I need someone to save me from myself. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it means everything you touch, Fred, everything you touch, you end up somehow, someway messing up. And that's a product of the fall. And the beautiful hope of Romans is that Christ can come and can change you from the inside out, but we have to start from a kind of a dark place. And the dark place in Romans 3, verse 10 is this, there's no one who's righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then even after we come to faith in Christ, we still need God to strengthen us. As I understand Romans 7, I see it written in reference to Paul's struggle even after he's put his faith in Jesus. Listen to verses 15 to 18. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Ever been there? 
Like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I do it anyways. Even after you come to faith in Christ, you have the power to do something else, and now you keep doing what you know you shouldn't do. Here's what he says. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but do not have the ability to carry it out. That means that if you're a follower of Jesus, every single day of your life, your prayer is God from you, through you, to you, or all things. So help me today, because if I don't follow hard after you, I will tank everything around me. Because it's my problem, my issue, my fault, my mind, my desires are still fundamentally not where they need to be, and I need you to come again and again and again and give me power and strength to follow after you. Some of you will remember that I used an illustration of an escalator. Describe the Christian life as walking up a down escalator. I gave you the image of the world and its system is always moving down and there are people who are partying all the way down that escalator, and sometime when you put your faith in Christ, you are awakened to the fact that that's the wrong direction. And so, what is the Christian life? Is it just coasting up an up escalator? No. The Christian life is this constant walking, this battle to walk up an escalator that's constantly pulling us down. And we grab our children and our friends and our small group and the people who are discipling, other brothers and sisters around us, and we say, let's keep walking. And when someone's like, I can't walk anymore, you're like, come on, we're going to walk. We're going to keep moving. We're going to keep moving forward because the essence of the Christian life is not that you never struggle, but it means that you never give up. That's the point. It doesn't mean that you ever start moving down the escalator for a season, but it means that you are awakened to the fact, no, I'm not going to go this way, and I'm going to walk back up the escalator, because Romans 8.10 says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. But Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.31, who... What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was the one who set me on this path, then God is the one who's going to help preserve and protect me all the way to the end. That's very important because for some of you, 2016 may prove to be a very difficult year. And you need to know that no matter what happens to you in life, You are kept and protected and empowered by the spirit of the risen Christ to keep walking and not stop. Third, Paul says, it's according to my gospel. Now unto him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel. So that strength comes to us through something else, namely the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news that Jesus has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And this good news of the gospel is all over Romans. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Well, Romans 5.8. Just hear this verse. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that. You didn't clean up before Christ died for you. You were stuck in the grave of your own self-deception and your own depravity, and Jesus stormed the citadel of your self-deception and your own depravity, and he pulled you out of your own 
dismay and your own self-destruction. Like Lazarus, he calls you, Lazarus, come forth, but he named your name. And in my case, it was Mark Vrogup, come forth. And as the hymn writer said, I woke, my dungeon, it flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's conversion. Romans 5.18, therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the gospel then creates not only forgiveness, it creates a new identity. It means that sinners become sons. It means that rebels become heirs and it means condemned become forgiven. This good news is the solution to the problem of mankind. What happens in the gospel is the enmity that was between God and us leads and gives way to God's embrace. We belong to Jesus. You belong to him and nothing can ever separate you from his love. The gospel is the means by which God has set his seal over you. You belong to him. So no matter what happens to you in this next year or years to come, no matter what the devil throws at you or what your internal struggles may be, at the end of the day, you need to know this. God has set his love on you. You belong to him, and there's no way he's letting you go down the down escalator. God himself is going to give you the strength to follow through on the gospel. Fourth, Paul says that there is a mystery according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. Here we see the plan and the scope that God has in mind. In the Old Testament, that plan wasn't very clear. There was a shadow of it. It was limited in its explanation and in its application. The law was given in order to highlight sin. Sacrifices were made as a, as a temporary payment for one's transgressions, and the focal point of redemption was the nation of Israel. In order to become part of God's family, in order to be forgiven, you had to enter through the people of Israel. And now the message of the book of Romans is the fact that the gospel has spread to all peoples, to all nations. He's made a way for permanent atonement to be made. And the aim, therefore, is to take this good news and to spread it to all of the nations. Namely, Paul has in mind the country of Spain, which is why he writes to the church at Rome. He wants them to have a vision for what is even beyond themselves. So again, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So that means something special has happened. Romans 4 says that Abraham then is not only the father of the Jewish people, but also the spiritual father of all who put their faith in Christ. And so you can never sing that little cheesy kid song, Father Abraham and many sons the same way again. Because there's actually substantial doctrinal truth in it. Now it's a kind of a dumb song at one level, right? You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. 
So let's just praise the Lord. That's super true. And then they, then they ruin it. Right arm, left arm, turn around, sit down. I mean, what, what's that? That's not in Romans 4. But that's okay if we can get the truth that I am one of them and so are you. I'll take that for stand up, sit down, stomp your feet, praise the Lord. That's okay. Because God's aim is to make many sons of Abraham. And thank God I'm one of them. And I'm glad you are too if you know Christ. Number five, by the command of the eternal God. The book of Romans, for some of you, was traumatic because it created new categories of who God is in your mind. It challenges the definitions that we naturally have in regards to fairness and even our own sense of freedom. In particular, Romans 9 through 11 helped us to see that the center of the center of the center of the universe is God, not me. It's helped us to see that there are divine purposes that are underneath our lives that are mysterious and mind-blowing. Just think, why you? Why did you hear the gospel when you heard it? And why when you heard it did it resonate within your heart? Why did God awaken your dead soul? So Romans should cause you not just to look at God's sovereign purposes and go, what? Instead, it should help you to look at your life and say, why me? Why me? I don't deserve any grace that you've given me. It ought to humble you under the beautiful display of God's kindness that of all the people on earth, you're in this room. It's unbelievable. It also means that God operates in categories that are far beyond mine. To help you, I used an illustration of a seven-year-old child who has older siblings. And mom and dad tell the seven-year-old child, it's time to go to bed. And they ask about their older siblings, well, do they have to go to bed? And invariably the mom and dad say, no, they don't. And the seven-year-old child appeals in the infinite court of fairness that what is happening in their living room has violated the essence of the laws of nature and that this is not fair. And yet mom and dad know that it's absolutely fair, but in fair in ways that a seven-year-old simply can't understand. And if you try and reason with a seven-year-old, you'll eventually lose the argument, and so what you end up doing <laughs> is trumping all of that and saying eventually, honey, I'm your mom or dad, and you need to go to bed. And that superseding law trumps any seven-year-old sense of fairness. And then we read Romans 9, and it sounds remarkably similar. But he says to Moses, this is verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? What Romans does is it jars us 
with this central truth that God is free to be God. And he operates in a realm of fairness, in a realm of divine sovereignty that is beyond our ability to even fully understand, and the rightful response to these huge and sometimes alarming mysteries is to come to Romans eleven thirty three 33 and to say this, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. In other words, you're God and I'm not. I'm going to close my mouth. Because Romans shows us the splendor and the awe of what it means for God to be God. For some of you, the book of Romans has gotten God a little higher in his rule and reign over the earth. I think that's what, why this book is so helpful. Number six, to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans is not all about just doctrine, it's also about practical living. And beginning in chapter 12 through chapter 15, we saw the way in which the gospel informs how we live. We saw in Romans 12 in particular that the mantra for a believer needs to be, Lord, I'm yours. I'm a living sacrifice. Change me, reform me, move me, and then lead me. So the mantra of the believer is, Lord, I'm yours. Lead me and change me. And then we saw the way in which the gospel then affects how we treat one another, how we deal with persecution, how we respond to the government. We also saw that the gospel changes how we welcome one another despite our differences. And this, these chapters helped us to understand the value of theological triage, that there's a difference between absolutes and convictions and preferences. Legalism is taking a preference and making it an absolute. Liberalism is taking an absolute and treating it like it's a preference. And the key is to understand the difference and to know how to graduate your emotions in terms of what commitments you make to various things, depending upon where they fall in that theological triage. We learned that while we're free in Christ, we're not free to needlessly harm a brother's faith. And we long for the day when we will, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is that together we welcome one another and we live with one another for the purpose of glorifying God together. And then how does this book end? The seventh and final statement, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. The book of Romans ends with the ultimate reality of all realities in the created order, namely, the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards says that this is the end for which God created the world. The aim of the book of Romans will also be the aim for all of eternity, the glory of God. It is the plan of God to redeem his people from their tragic and treasonous exchange of his glory for their own glory so that he might be glorified. It is the plan of God to then apply the righteousness of Christ to those who put their faith in him so that he might receive glory. It is the plan of God to orchestrate everything in his people's life 
so that they will more and more and more reflect the glory of Jesus, so that he will be glorified. And it is the plan of God that one day all of this redeemed people from all nations will gather on the new heavens and the new earth, and God will come down and will dwell with them. There'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. The former things will be gone, all things will be new, and all that we'll see all day, all long, is the glory of God. It'll light our life and be the essence of what it means to live on earth. Even so, God, let it come and let it come soon. So what Romans does, dear church, is it helps us to see the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of that plan. It helps us to see the beauty of God's righteousness and to marvel that God would ever give us this righteousness as a gift through faith in Christ. It opens our eyes to the sweeping implications that we who trust in Christ have an alien righteousness, that I'm righteous before God, but not because of me because of Christ. And as a result, it propels us to live righteously, to love each other deeply, and to reach unreached peoples who need to be brought into the family of God. You see, this book and its content and its vision can change a person's life. It can even change your life today, where you move from being an alien to suddenly being a son, where you move from being a rebel now to being an heir. It contains the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I'd call on you today, if you've not believed in Jesus, oh, that you might believe even today. Famous 16th century Bible translator William Tyndale longed for the people of England to have a Bible in their native tongue, English. He was executed for translating the Bible and trying to have it printed. At his martyrdom, he prayed, God, open the king of England's eyes. And a number of years after his death, his vision and his dream came true as English translations flooded the English countryside, and it changed church history. He knew that if you want to change a people and you want to change a country, give them the Bible, because the words of the Bible will change people's lives. And he believed that the book of Romans, in particular, had the power to do just that. Here's what he said. Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. No man can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the more it is chewed. The pleasanter it is, the more it is searched, the more precious things are found. So church, as we say farewell to Romans, my plea with you, with you would be this. Do not bid farewell to this book forever because you need the book of Romans in your life and in your mind and in your heart because Romans shows us the beauty that of a righteousness that God demands is a righteousness that he gives and that reality through Christ changes everything. So we bid farewell to Romans today, but my prayer is that Romans will always have a very important place in your heart and in the life of this church.
Father used the words written so many years ago in this glorious book to make us a people who are more in awe and in love with you, a people whose minds and hearts have been shaped by big eternal truths. Make us a people who live righteously because of who we are in Christ. And make us a people who worship profoundly differently because of what we see of you in this book. God, we love you and say to you, to you be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.